Hello and welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. I'm your host, Luke Prague. Today I interview Gregory Dawes, a biblical scholar and philosopher from New Zealand, about his new book, Theism and Explanation. But first, here is today's reading from The Good Book. Today's reading is from 2 Kings chapter 2. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy! They said. Get out of here, Baldy! He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there returned to Samaria. So yeah, the all-good, morally perfect God of the Bible thinks that an appropriate response to somebody teasing somebody else is for bears to come and tear off the limbs of 42 children. Ah, such a warm, fuzzy character. Anyway, on to my interview with Gregory Dawes. Okay, so I'm speaking with Gregory Dawes at the University of Otago in New Zealand, and Gregory is an associate professor in religious studies and also does some work in philosophy. And today we're going to be speaking about his book, Theism and Explanation, and also some other topics. So thanks for joining me, Greg. Right, thank you very much, Luke. I'm very pleased to be have this opportunity. Well, Greg, I always like to start with my my guest's personal story. Do you have a faith journey or a non-faith journey to tell us? I certainly do have a personal story. I was brought up within a Roman Catholic family and trained for the priesthood and was ordained a priest and spent 12 years working as a Catholic priest here in New Zealand and also studying in Rome, where I studied at the Pontifical Biblical Institute. So, in fact, my initial training was as a biblical scholar, and I have a PhD in biblical studies as well as in philosophy. So, that was my that was my background, very much, very deeply involved in the Roman Catholic faith. And gradually, I got to the point of leaving the priesthood, not for intellectual reasons, but because I had decided that it had been a foolish decision on my part to try and live a life of celibacy. Yes. And I'm now a very happily married man with two young children. Um, but also, in due course, I kind of, I think a little like yourself, read and thought my way out of belief. And actually, it came as something of a surprise to me, for one day I discovered that actually I didn't believe anymore. But um, this was fine. <laughs> it took a little bit of readjustment, but... I now find myself um, very comfortable with the position I now hold. Very interesting. For you, what was it in the intellectual department that caused your loss of faith? I find it hard to say exactly, and of course it's very hard to distinguish intellectual concerns from other factors, which you know are probably more personal. But um, I think actually my work on the historical Jesus debate, I think once you adopt a thoroughly historical approach to religion, a historical approach to religion has a kind of leveling and relativizing effect on religious authority. And in fact, I explored this in an earlier book 
entitled The Historical Jesus Question, The Challenge of History to Religious Authority, and that once you begin to see Christianity as merely one religion among others, then its claims to authority are no longer self-evident, and you need to begin to explore what reasons can be offered in its support. And like many philosophers, I guess, once I began to explore the reasons that could be offered in its support, they didn't really seem adequate to the, to the cause. So, I, but I think it was really my kind of historical work on the scriptures and on the historical Jesus debate that, that kind of prompted my intellectual questions about faith. That's very interesting. It seems like you and Bart Ehrman and men, many other people were equipped during their education by the church, basically, uh, with the tools that they needed to figure out for themselves that it wasn't likely that Jesus rose from the dead or that God exists. Yes, no, that's that's very interesting because, in fact, I think I received a very good training at the Pontifical Biblical Institute with the Jesuits in Rome. Um, and they were all people who were, I think, remarkably free-thinking, clearly within the context of faith, but nonetheless encouraging questioning. And my own family, I must say, my I remember when I was an adolescent, my father, who was a devout Catholic, but my father saying that he would prefer his children left the church because they were thinking about it, rather than merely remained in the church out of habit. So I was never... I was never in an environment which discouraged questioning, which was, which means I've got very positive memories of my involvement with the Catholic Church. I'm not a disgruntled ex-Catholic. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so what you say is right, that in fact the, the Church helped me to develop the critical tools that I required to ultimately leave the Church, paradoxically perhaps, but I think that's how it worked. Mm. Well, let's talk about your book, Theism and Explanation. Uh, what's the book in a capsule? What's your argument? Well, my argument is that there is no reason in principle, or one cannot exclude a priori, the possibility of an adequate explanation that invokes a supernatural agent. That we need to be at least open to the possibility that there could be such mm -hmm. an explanation. The burden, of course, the burden of proof falls on the theist to show that his or her proposed theistic explanation has the qualities that we would expect of any successful explanation, that it's well corroborated, that it's economical, that it's simple, that it's informative, and so on and so forth, but that we shouldn't make an a priori judgment. Each proposed theistic explanation needs to be judged on its own merit. And therefore, a kind of dogmatic methodological naturalism, in the sense of one that would exclude a priori or talk of supernatural agents, is simply unwarranted. Yeah, and I think a lot of evidentialist theists would agree with you there. They just think that the evidence uh, fits theism better than atheism. Yes, in fact, I spend, I spend quite a bit of time in the book discussing the work of Richard Swinburne. I argue in the end that I don't think Swinburne's proposed theistic explanations have the kind of force that he, he attributes to them, and I argue in particular that they're not particularly informative and therefore not testable. Uh, but nonetheless, I, you know, am quite sympathetic in principle to his program, and I think it's worthy of 
serious consideration. My starting point was really the debates about intelligent design theory, because if you look at the debates, particularly in court in the United States, trials like the Dover, Pennsylvania trial, the end of 2005, where um, the issue of the methodological naturalism of the sciences understood as a kind of a priori exclusion of supernatural agency is a key issue. The judge in the Dover, Pennsylvania trial says at one point that intelligent design is not science because it violates the centuries-old ground rules of science by invoking and permitting supernatural causation. Well, that's true, but, but this seems to be a kind of mere matter of definition. That would be a kind of Pyrrhic victory over intelligent design if, in fact, what they were offering is the best available explanation of the phenomena. To merely say, oh, well, science is not permitted to invoke supernatural agents would be crazy, if in fact invoking a supernatural agent provided the most adequate explanation of the facts. So I think that kind of the debate about intelligent design has been led astray by the question of whether or not the sciences traditionally permit supernatural causes. They don't, but that really begs the question. It doesn't, um, it doesn't really answer the question of whether a supernatural cause could be invoked in this context. Yeah, I think Maybe the point of the trial was, of course, a more legal one than a philosophical one. It would be rather grand if we could work out our philosophical pro problems uh, in front of a huge audience like that. But, of course, the, the law had more to do with whether or not this could be taught or should be taught in science classrooms, not whether or not it was the best explanation. So maybe that's why the judge decided that it wasn't yes, science. Yes, uh, I mean Yes, I mean, I can quite understand what motivates um, the way in which these cases are presented, and I can understand, and I'm obviously in sympathy with the conclusion because I'm no fan of intelligent design, but my argument would be that intelligent design theory is simply bad science because it doesn't make the kind of testable predictions that will make it into a successful or a potentially successful research program. I think the problem here is that people set up an unhelpful antithesis. They say, oh, well, if it's religion, it can't be science. But it seems to me that, at least in principle, we need to explore the possibility that something could be both, that you could have a claim, uh, a proposed explanation invoking a divine agent that actually met the kind of standards of adequacy that we expect of a scientific explanation. Now, I don't think we have any such things, but I don't think we can assume from the outset that it's impossible. So it seems to me that the antithesis between, well, if it's religion, then it can't be science. While it's understandable in the United States, where you have a constitutional separation of church and state, and the question of religion and schools is a big issue, and again, I'm sympathetic with the secularist tendency here, nonetheless, philosophically, it seems to me to be kind of muddled and leads people astray. Yeah, I think the theists, of course, are quite right to complain that if the atheists are just ruling out the supernatural to begin with, then, you know, of course their supernatural brand of intelligent design is is not going to work. Um, but there's a deeper issue here, and it has to do with what is the best explanation when we don't rule out supernatural 
agents, but we just put everything on a level playing for. What are we looking for when we're looking for a good explanation of something? Right, that of course is an excellent question and, and, and a key one here. I think there are two basic approaches here. It seems to me that there's a approach which is sometimes called justificationist, which uses probability calculations and Bayesian reasoning in order to try and decide what is the most probable explanation or which of the proposed explanations has the highest degree of, of probability. Now, that's certainly a legitimate approach and it's an approach that many philosophers adopt. I myself in the book tend to favor what I call an explanationist approach where rather than trying to do probability calculations, you simply look for the proposed theory or proposed explanation that shows to the greatest degree the kind of explanatory qualities that you would look for, qualities like being well-corroborated, ontologically economical, simple, informative, and so on. These sort of explanatory desiderata or explanatory virtues that we look for in a theory. Rather than trying to do probability calculations, as, say, Richard Swinburne does, I adopt a slightly different approach of looking simply at the kind of explanatory qualities that a theory can offer. Now, there are reasons for doing this. I was quite convinced, for example, by an argument put forward by John Ehrman some time ago that when Darwin put forward his theory in 1859, could you have shown by probability calculations that its posterior, its final probability was greater than 0.5? Probably not. I mean, in many ways, Darwin's theory was an inspired guess and a lot of the evidence still had to be accumulated. But it offered a really promising research program. As Philip Pitchers said, it, it gave a, a structure to our ignorance that offered a way ahead. It offered possibility of, of it was more fruitful than anything else currently on offer. And I think that's the way science often works. People look for a fruitful, promising explanation rather than trying to do probability calculations. So it just seems to me that the, the non-Bayesian explanationist approach is more promising in this regard. But I'm, I think either way of assessing explanations can be, can be odd, can be adopted. Well, and I think finding the right questions, as Darwin did, can give us the research program that leads to more accurate probability estimates so that they might inform Bayesian reasoning anyway, uh, so they might yes. work in tandem. Absolutely. These two are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but uh, in my book I actually avoid Bayesian reasoning in favor of a, of a less kind of quantitative approach to theory assessment. But that's fine. That's, that's sort of an ongoing debate in philosophy and philosophy of science. Well, I'm very curious to know what is the specific approach that you have. Like, so far it sounds something like the um, C.B. McCullough justifying historical descriptions approach. That's, that's what my familiarity is with anyway. As far as explanatory scope, explanatory power, is that what we're talking about here? or? Yes, yes it is. Um, what I do is I start with C.S. Peirce's description of abduction. Mm -hmm. um, Peirce has a very simple abductive schema, which is very famous, in which he adopts the line that, you know, how does the schema go, just trying to remember, a surprising fact is observed. If our hypothesis H were true, this surprising fact would be a matter of course. Therefore, there is reason to suspect that H is true. Now, you've got to be really careful about that schema because on the face of it, it looks like the fallacy of affirming the consequent. But nonetheless, 
what I say is, look, if the second premise of that schema is fulfilled, if you can say that if this hypothesis were true, then the fact to be explained would be a matter of course, would follow, then you've got at least a potential explanation of the fact. But having arrived at a potential explanation of the fact, you must then, of course, apply these kind of explanatory tests of explanatory virtue to decide whether it's the best available explanation of the fact. So I distinguish between a potential explanation and an actual explanation. And typically we have a whole series of potential explanations. We then have to decide which of these is the most adequate. So it's a kind of inference to the best explanation from a series of potential explanations. If you if you get my drift. Yeah, well, it's it's very difficult to follow symbols and a logical argument on in audio. But I wonder if we might plug some real yes. things in there that we're used to. Like for example, it seems to most scientists, virtually all, that Darwinian evolution by natural selection is a very good explanation in a lot of ways for millions and millions of phenomena that we observe. How does that fit into the model that you just gave for explanatory reasoning? Or how does that satisfy a lot of the criteria? I think what you could say, perhaps, is that, okay, at the time Darwin offered it, it was clearly a potential explanation of the facts to which he referred. The question then is, well, does it have the features that you would expect of an adequate explanation? Is it corroborated? Well, you can either understand corroboration here as accumulating positive instances in its support, or if you follow, say, Karl Popper, you might look at corroboration as the ability to have survived severe tests and survived criticism. And, of course, mm-hmm. on either on either criterion, this uh, theory of evolution by natural selection does seem to have stood up to testing. And so, therefore, a major criterion of what you would look for in an adequate explanation, which is not just testability, but having survived testing, seems to have been fulfilled. And, of course, it's also informative. I think informativeness, Peter Lipton talks about uh, the difference between a likely explanation and a lovely one. A lovely explanation, he says, is one that's really informative, that gives you lots of interesting details and predictive um, things that will predict about reality, which in turn helps the testing of the theory. So this is potentially highly informative. There are lots of things you can predict on the basis of the theory of evolution by natural selection. And it's also, it appeals to a, and this is something Darwin saw in its favour, it appeals to its mechanism which has unknown analogue. I mean, Darwin thought that um, artificial selection, as practised by farmers and animal and plant breeders, was an analogue, something we knew could produce diversity amongst living organisms, and therefore, what he was proposing was an analogous mechanism for one which was natural rather than artificial. But the fact that it could appeal to a natural, to an analogous mechanism, which we know can produce similar effects on a smaller scale, was something in its favour. So there are these kinds of explanatory virtues that I think Darwin's theory clearly did, even in 1859, have these qualities. And of course, today, it's even better corroborated than it was then. So I think that's that's a really good ex- instance of of a well corroborated theory that meets the standards we would expect of a of a good explanation. Yeah. So I wonder now if we might take those same criteria that 
evolution by natural selection seems to pass so well and apply them to intelligent design and maybe you can explain why intelligent design doesn't fare quite so well uh, so we've got you know corroborated uh, nothing makes sense in biology without evolution it works in all these yep. different varieties of, of fields of, of biology uh, evolution is testable it actually passes the tests that we give it it predicts new data where we make a prediction and you know they go over here and find a fossil where they would expect to find it that yep. kind of thing and it has a known analog in artificial sl selection where we already know that a process very much like that works and so it makes sense to think that natural selection would work so looking at those kind of things and then applying those criteria for good explanations to intelligent design what do we find I think what we find, and I think there's something rather ironical here, because I think what we find is that the intelligent design hypothesis is kind of terminally vague. As someone put it, it amounts to the claim that some intelligent designer somewhere, somehow, did something to bring about the specified <laughs> complexity of, of living organisms. Yes. Now, actually, the irony here is that intelligent design advocates are trying hard not to say this designer is the Christian God, because it then looks like religion, and people are going to mount the constitutional argument against teaching it in schools. But actually, by, by avoiding identifying the designer as the Christian God, they actually rob their proposed theory, I think, of any serious predictive power. Mm -hmm. Because they say so little about the designer that it's not at all clear what in fact, it's very hard to see what would follow if it were true. And so if you can't say what would follow in some detail if this theory were true, then it's not really testable at all. And that's why I think it's simply bad science. Of course, the problem here is that if they did identify, and when they do identify the designer as the Christian God, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and morally perfect, then, of course, you have arguments from suboptimality in design, that a lot of things in nature don't seem to be well designed at all. And you also have the, which, of which the argument from evil is really a, a particular type. You say, well, if this world were the result of a morally perfect, all-powerful, benevolent designer, then why do we have all this suffering and so on? So I think the problem is that if they, on the one hand, try and avoid identifying the designer with the Christian God, their theory has no predictive power. If, on the other hand, they identify the designer with the Christian God, then you can make predictions, but the problem is the facts seem to contradict yeah. the predictions. So I think they're caught in the sense between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Yeah, if they keep their theory vague, then it predicts nothing, and there can't really be any evidence for it. Uh, and if they make it specific... Yes then it very rapidly starts contradicting everything that we've actually found to be true about the universe. Yes, I mean, um, who was the biologist, I've forgotten, who famously remarked that Mother Nature is a wicked old witch, and there's a lot of truth in this. I mean, the natural world is not particularly benign, despite the efforts of William Paley and others to... And of course, Darwin was well aware of this, and it led Darwin away from traditional theism himself. And so I think, yes, there is this problem for intelligent design. Either it goes really vague to avoid being identified with religion, but then it doesn't look like science either because it's got no predictive power, or if it goes explicitly theistic, 
then you've got arguments from suboptimality and from evil against what they, they seem to be saying. So that's why I don't think intelligent design has a future. But that's, of course, a, an ongoing debate. Yeah. Well, I from the summaries that I've read of your book, I gather that you argue that theistic explanations of any kind are unlikely to be the best explanation for a given phenomena. Why do you think that? Like, maybe Christian theism doesn't seem to fit the world, but why do you think that any proposed theistic explanations are unlikely to be the best explanation? Well, although I do arrive at that conclusion, my concern is more to say that this is not something that can be excluded a priori. I do think I do think that for various reasons, theistic explanations are not likely, for example, to be informative. That they don't make, they're not likely to produce the kind of quantifiable predictions that we would hope for. And this is partly because of the mysteriousness of, of a divine agent. Certainly in the sense of classical theism. It's very hard to know just what predicates, action predicates, for example, like God commanding or forgiving or comforting or guiding or even speaking would mean when applied to a divine agent. And theologians, of course, have long recognized this by saying that, well, all our language about God is at best analogical. It's a very common position amongst uh, theologians. And But this merely exacerbates the problem. Okay, if it's analogical, then what predictions can we make on the basis of it? How, how can we say what it would mean for God to to um, to act in a certain way? And if we can't spell that out, then then the proposed theistic explanation doesn't seem to me to be informative. But that's uh, so. I think there are reasons for for thinking that it's unlikely that any proposed theistic explanation would be successful. But that isn't a kind of reason to forbid anyone to make the attempt. I think that it's, okay, fair enough, if a theist like Richard Swinburne wants to propose that the existence of God is the best available explanation of some phenomenon, I'm very interested to listen, and we should take that seriously. But of course it needs to be assessed against the same kind of criteria as we would assess any other proposed explanation. And it's to try and spell out these criteria, really, that that I wrote the book. Well, uh, as far as methodological naturalism goes, would you mind giving us just a brief overview of what that is and why the sciences cling to methodological naturalism? Why do they not admit supernatural explanations? That just seems unfair. Well, I think firstly there's a there's an ambiguity in the phrase methodological naturalism. So I've just finished reviewing a lovely little book by a philosopher called Jack Ritchie, on naturalism. And he defines methodological naturalism in a sense quite close to that which uh, Willem van Norman Quine uses uh, or adopts, which is that in inquiring about the nature of the world, what the world is like, we should follow as closely as possible the methods of the sciences. Now, I agree with that, and it doesn't seem to me but it doesn't seem to me that that in itself necessarily excludes a supernatural agent. If you could show that a supernatural agent was the best explanation of some phenomenon, then in fact you could follow the methods of the sciences and 
arrive at that conclusion. And Quine himself says this. He says that if positing the existence of God could provide some indirect explanatory benefit, then he would accept that there is a God. He just doesn't think that is the case. But in fact, the way people use methodological naturalism in, say, the debate about intelligent design, it seems to me that it's almost equivalent to a metaphysical naturalism. It's the assumption that there is no supernatural agent and that therefore the sciences should never invoke such a thing. And that seems to me to be going a bit too far. I'm happy with methodological naturalism in the first sense, that the sciences and their methods are the best ways we have for finding out what the world is like. But methodological naturalism in the stronger sense seems to me to be, as the critics, the theological critics often say, something of a, almost a kind of dogmatic presupposition, which doesn't seem to me to be warranted. So I think the reason the sciences don't invoke a supernatural agent is that we don't have any good explanations that do so. Simple as that. If we had a, a really good theistic research program, then the sciences should, and I hope would, would adopt it. But, but as it happens, we don't have any, any such thing. So this, this is not an a priori exclusion to my mind, or it shouldn't be. It's an a, poster, a posteriori exclusion, which says, well, we don't have any explanations that meet the standards of adequacy from the part of the theist, and therefore we don't need to worry about this particular hypothesis. Yeah, the, one way I often put it is that theistic explanations just don't work. They just don't help at all. They, don't, they haven't given us any new knowledge yeah. at all. Uh, and they haven't predicted new things. They haven't worked with, you know, you know, corroborated uh, phenomena or phenomena that corroborates the theory. It just they don't work at all, and that's why I reject them. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think there is a difference between saying, look, fair enough, you're free to offer a theistic explanation if you want, and we'll assess it on its merits. But as it happens, up till now, no one has succeeded in offering a theistic explanation that really has the qualities we would expect of any adequate explanation. There's a difference between that view, which is a kind of a posteriori rejection, and a view which says, no, 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 science could never admit a supernatural agent because that's just the way science is. We mustn't allow supernatural agency into the world. Well, okay. I mean, we've admitted lots of strange things into the world in the last century of yes. physics, for example. <laughs> so it seems to me that a kind of a priori, almost metaphysical naturalism, which says, you know, we are committed to a particular view of the way the world is, is unwarranted. We shouldn't be, to my mind, committed to any particular set of conclusions about the way the world is. And if we present the methodological naturalism of the sciences as an a priori commitment to a particular view of the world, then I think theists have got good reason to object to it. And... So I think that that's an unhelpful way to present naturalism in the context of the sciences. Yeah, and I think your point, your your reference to physics actually drives your point home really well because here in the last century we've discovered some things about the universe that are nearly as bizarre and outrageous as some of the theistic, you know, claims. Uh, some parts of quantum mechanics just seem to just break logic entirely. Uh, just about, and uh, and yet, why do we accept those explanations? Because they meet the 
explanatory criteria, and they, they work, they are corroborated, they are testable, they pass tests, they, they meet all these criteria. And mm. so it's not that we're a priori ruling out everything that's bizarre and outlandish and uh, nonsensical. It's that it's just got to pass the test for good explanations. Right, and I absolutely, and I think, I think if we mean by naturalism that things ought to pass the test for good explanations, and that the sciences provide a model for, or the natural sciences do provide a model of the kind of thing we look for in a good explanation, then fine, I'm very happy to embrace naturalism. But that's a kind of methodological naturalism in a, in a quite narrow and strict sense. Uh, a stronger methodological naturalism which says, you know, we must never under any circumstances admit a supernatural agent, that seems to me to be just a kind of dogmatism. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that our prior commitment to a particular view of the world is at all wise or warranted, particularly, as you say, given the remarkable things that physicists now tell us about the universe, mm -hmm. which we would never have expected and which seem, um, you know, to have revolutionized our understanding of the world. Yeah. Well, are there any theistic arguments or theistic philosophers or scientists who you think are kind of on the strongest possible track for providing reasons to believe theism? Uh, maybe there's nobody that's even, you know, 10% of the way there, but are there, is there anybody who's got a, a research program at all out there? I mean, the theistic philosopher whom I most admire although I can't say I find his work particularly easy to read, is Richard Swinburne. I mean, I think Swinburne is a serious, offers some very serious arguments in favor of, of theism, and actually arrives at a remarkably modest conclusion. As I recall, he arrives at the conclusion that, well, the probability that God exists, given the cumulative force of the various arguments, is kind of just over 0.5. So it's just more likely than not that God exists. And, you know, I think both the modesty of that conclusion and the kind of arguments that he brings in its support are, are worth taking very seriously. I'm, for various reasons, not ultimately convinced by them, but I think they are, they are serious arguments. So I think someone like Swinburne is a, a model for how a theist can, in fact, take seriously or offer serious arguments for for the existence of God. I do think when Swinburne goes further, as he does in his book on Revelation, and tries to offer arguments for the, the, the truth of distinctively Christian beliefs, he's on much shakier yeah. ground. So, of course, there's always this difference between defending a kind of restricted theism, belief in God, and defending a particular form of you know, expanded theism, as William Rowe calls it. That's always a, that's always a much more difficult task. But still, I think, if, obviously, if one could show that it was more likely than not that the, the god of classical theism exists, that's a, a very significant achievement. So, yeah, I, I admire Swinburne's work as a, as a serious attempt to offer arguments of this kind. Yes. I wonder if there are particular philosophers or scientists whose case against the existence of God you find most compelling, besides your own, of course. <laughs> no, I wouldn't claim any, any any particular originality here at all. Although I think the person whose argument I find most convincing is Paul Draper. 
that actually I was corresponding with Paul Draper recently on a related topic, but his evidential argument from evil, I think, seems to me to be pretty hard to to refute. That if you set up two hypotheses, the hypothesis of theism and what he calls the hypothesis of indifference, that whatever brought about the world as we know it, whatever forces brought about the world as we know it, were indifferent to the welfare or suffering of creatures, then the observer is always going to look more likely on the basis of the hypothesis of indifference than on the basis of the hypothesis of theism. And this seems to me to be a very hard argument to answer. And in fact, even someone like Alvin Plantinger recognises the force of the argument, but of course Plantinger thinks he can evade it by arguing that Christianity can be a form of sort of warranted basic belief and therefore you don't need to worry about such evidential arguments. But for other reasons, I'm not at all convinced by Plantinger's solution. But even Plantinger recognises the force of Draper's argument, and I think it's a, a really good argument. I mean, Plantinger has a response to the logical argument for me, yeah. the idea that there is no possible world in which God and suffering exists. And, you know, one can debate that response. But the evidential argument for me well, just looks to me like a, a damned good one for atheism, I have to say. Yeah, it, the world obviously fits better with cosmic indifference than with all-good, all-powerful God. The all-powerful, all-good God, uh, you have to stretch a lot to think that that's plausible, whereas indifference fits perfectly. And actually, on a personal level, to get back to where we started, mm-hmm. I do I do have the strong memory that when I decided I was no longer a believer, my immediate reaction was one of relief. Mm. I didn't have to try and fit all the counter-evidence anymore into a theistic framework. And the counter-evidence was largely to do with, with suffering. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, I kind of felt, whoa, whoa, this, <laughs> you know, this is a burden of which I am now relieved, because it was a very serious burden, I think, for a theist to, to have to carry. Yes. Well, Greg, before we go, I have to ask you about a 2002 article you published through Pacifica, just because of the title, oh, yes. God Beyond Theism, Bishop Spong, Paul Tillich, and the Unicorn. What is that about? It came out of the talk I gave when Bishop Spong visited us here in Dunedin and gave a public talk. And whatever one may think of Bishop Spong's views, he is a very impressive public speaker and a great orator. So I felt it was a challenge to offer a response to what he had to say. But the paper grew out of that that response. What I discovered actually was that Bishop Spong's views are heavily indebted, it seems to me, to the work of Paul Tillich, uh-huh. the theologian. And so in the end my paper examines more Paul Tillich's views than um than Spong's directly. So I trace Spong's views back to Tillich and then and then look at Tillich's views. Well I think the reason I asked is because as I've been doing my own exploration of philosophy of religion, I've found that the philosophers do not defend the same type of God that the common religious people do. And so much to the point where I'm not sure why they still call themselves theists. I mean, there are several prominent materialist Christians in the philosophy of religion world. And then there are theists like Tillich or Spong... Uh, or several others who I, I'm not really even sure that what they believe in is 
is God or supernaturalism or anything like that, and, and yet they're still called theists. Yes, yes, that's right. I think that's certainly the case for um, for Spong, because in fact, of course, he adopts a position in the end quite close to that held by Don Cooper, yeah. which is a kind of non-realism about about belief, about about God. And, you know, I think that's it's not necessarily a crazy view. I mean, you can argue that, I mean, you could argue that, look, we have no reason to believe in a God, but God talk serves some certain useful purposes, you know, and therefore we might be, have good reason to continue this tradition of God talk, but understanding it metaphorically. After all, fiction can serve all kinds of useful purposes, so you can adopt a a kind of fictional interpretation of, of God talk. It's not, of course, classical theism, and it's not, of course, the kind of thing that philosophers normally uh, address their arguments to, but it's it's not necessarily a kind of incoherent position. It's, it's a, perhaps a defensible view. There are perhaps three things here. There's the, the God of classical theism, which is the God held to by philosophically-minded religious believers and the God whose existence, atheist debate. But there is also the non-realist view adopted by people like Don Cupid, against which a whole different set of arguments would have to be mounted, which says that talk of God is a useful fiction. But in between the two, there's actually some very interesting research that suggests that most religious believers do not in practice think of God as omnipotent, omniscient, and even morally perfect. And certainly the God of the Bible. It's hard to see that the God of the Bible is necessarily represented in the same way in which we would philosophers might represent God. So there is a suggestion which is backed up by some empirical research that actually in practice religious believers don't think about God in the way in which either philosophically minded theologians or or atheists uh, assume. So there are some interesting different conceptions of God out there which, which, which one could explore. Greg, it's been a pleasure interviewing you, and you've given very good answers to all my questions, but I'm going to try to end with a, with a stumper. <laughs> yes. How is it that non-professionals like myself are supposed to afford academic books when they cost $100? Uh, yes, I'm, <laughs> I'm very... Uh, this this bothers me, I have to say, because, I mean, the price of academic books is, has become ludicrous, and I really am concerned about this. What I think we can do, actually, and I, I must explore the possibility with Routledge, what I think we should do is see if we can publish at least... I mean, actually, large sections of the book are available on Google Books, so you can, in fact, read significant portions of the book just by going to Google Books. Ah, very of good. course, bits are omitted as well because of copyright restrictions, but Google Books does provide a way of reading quite a bit of, of the book without having to purchase it. Of course, libraries are great. <laughs> libraries do hold copies of these books. Um, but I think the price of, of books is, is a real problem. What I think we can do often is provide either chapters of the book or at least the synopsis of the book available online, and I hope to hope to be able to do that, which will be freely available for for anybody to read. 
But I think this is an issue generally with academic publishing these days, because even online journals, people who don't belong to a university or who don't subscribe will find it difficult to get access to online academic journals. And I'm a great believer in kind of open access scholarship, that where possible, we ought to make all scholarship freely available to anyone who wants to read it. But this, I think, is an ongoing issue for for academics to to explore. Well, I'm sure we'll make some progress. The internet is a powerful force for democratizing information. I think it is, yes. yes. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining me for this interview. Oh, thank you very much, Luke. I've enjoyed the opportunity. And that's it for this episode of Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. I'll see you next time. Thank you.